Hello, listeners. This is Emily Ann from Democrats for Education Reform, and you're listening to Ed Chats from DFERS Media Team. From its inception, our nation's public education system has been rooted in inequity, spanning lines of race, gender, gender identity, class, sexual orientation, native language, zip code, and disability. In efforts to change the status quo, education thought leaders and political minds are revolutionizing the education space. Every month, we sit down with a few of these leaders and discuss what's being done right now to advance a high-quality, equitable education system for every student. Today, we're talking with Democrat for Education Reform's new interim CEO, Shakira Petit, on how her background as a former educator is shaping her 2023 goals as the driving force behind one of the nation's largest education advocacy organizations. Shakira, thank you so much for being here with us today. I'd like to start with your educational upbringing and if you would just describe your experience with the public education system. My experience with the the public education system was um, by and large very interesting, but it was fruitful. Um, I think one of the experiences that really shaped me early was an experience with a music teacher. And it didn't come back to me until I started thinking about this question. So in the, I grew up in Irvington, New Jersey, which is right on the border of Newark, New Jersey, one of the largest uh, public school districts in the state of, state of New Jersey. Um, and it was the average kids from all over the, the town would come and you'd have your football team, your baseball teams and all of that kind of fun stuff. So I had a, a, a healthy public education. Um, this was before music uh, was an option. It was you had to take music or you had to take art or you had to take the top technology. You had to take home ec. You had to take all of those classes that helped you become well-rounded and well-shapen as a young person. And I remember being in third grade when instrumental music started. And I was nervous, but I was intrigued. And I was like, well, let, let me just go see and it really shaped my confidence and it shaped my ability to think about things in a very flexible and fluid and artistic way. And so the, the second experience in public education that stood out was my experiences with the science teacher my freshman year, Ms. Jordan, the, my biology teacher. And it, and it was the content that she taught that grabbed me. Biology has just been like, this is the study of us. This is the study of who we are, how we're made and why we're made. But she gave me the freedom to make mistakes and be okay. She also gave me the freedom to think really, really outside of the box. There has to be another way to solve this. There has to be another explanation for why the heart beats the way that it beats and what happens when something is off. So she gave me that confidence to explore more and more. What I didn't realize she was doing as a, a freshman in high school was setting a groundwork for something that I would absolutely fall in love with much later in life. And I don't even think she knows this. So the the experience changed sophomore year when I when I walked into the room of a teacher whose name I will not name, who did not like children. And it was very apparent and clear that she did not like children. She taught earth science. And so I came off this great experience freshman year and I'm like, this is gonna be great. We're gonna learn about the earth and learn about the atmosphere and learn about the planets. And this woman barely tolerated children. 
And I hated science by the end of that year. I remember sitting by the windows in the second seat in the last row and leaning against the window like, who? why are we here? Because she taught with such a tolerance as opposed to a passion. And she made it clear without ever saying those words that there were some of us who should be successful and there were others who, if you know, if you get there, it's good luck. And this is why it's so important for teachers to really love what they do and not like, but love children. Because the days when you don't feel your best, children can sense it, they can smell it, they can feel it. And that is reflected onto them. It was clear to me as a junior in high school that if you're not going to stand in this office and do it with fidelity and do it from a place of deep love and concern for the children that are in front of you, please don't do it. You are damaging them, whether you know it or not. Senior year, I had another great experience with a uh, physics teacher. I had high honors physics, which was awesome. So that brought my love back. And so when I got into college, my path had been straightened out a little bit more. But saying that to say, teachers are midwives to these children's destinies, to careers, to lifelong work, to creating a piece that no one has ever seen before, to writing a piece of music that no one has ever dreamed about. You midwife that into the earth. When you stand in this office and you disrespect it and it is not what you want to do, you are changing destinies of children, period. And the importance of the Miss Jordan, my freshman biology teacher and the physics teacher of senior year and, and even the amazing professors that I had doing my bachelor's at Hofstra University, they helped to shape and groom me along the way. They saw things in me that I did not see in myself. And even as, a, as, as 19 and 20, when I was in college, still trying to figure it out, I've declared a major, but is that really what I want to do? I declared a minor, but is that really what I want to do? And as the things began to, to blend and to come together, I saw this, this, this version of me that I liked. And that was because the, the, the teachers that were around me pulled things out of me that I never knew was there. They had the expertise and the experience and the life experience to know what they were seeing in a very, very initial moldable state. And that is what teachers do. We take potential and we give it shape and form and voice. That's why it's so important. It's so interesting because there are, I mean, just one teacher can change the life of a student who had such a positive experience that now has this one negative interaction and they can be completely turned off from something that might have propelled them into a full career, like you being in science and wanting to go into the medical field because of that. I mean, and especially because you had both a negative and positive interaction within the same field. Yeah. So now you're aware of how easy it is for a student to be turned off from something and the weight that a teacher has with the students. Yes. And and it's the the responsibility now for the for the next teacher to undo the damage of the prior teacher is significant. And I this this jumped out to me when I was running the special needs district in 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 Westchester. All of those children had come through prior school districts. They had been there for years and they didn't understand or have the capacity or the tools to support the young people that came to my district. So by the time you got to me, you had been kicked out of your home district, whatever other alternative programs they had, 
and multiple academic environments before you came to me. So you're the, the file that was this thick that came to me. They've been kicked out of here. They've been suspended this many times. They've got this kind of learning disability. And it was a narrative about all of the negatives and very little about the gifting and the talent that was in this child that nobody tapped into. And there's there's districts like that everywhere. So imagine how many children are going unnoticed. But particularly around that seventh and eighth grade year, you start to make a life decision about whether this is for me or not. I had babies that dropped out of school in elementary, refused to go to school in middle school because no one understood and they were mislabeled as ODD, as behaviorally oppositional, as you just don't want to be here. You're just, a, they had every name hurled at them. The, the singular experience can push you forward or it can set you back years. So important what we do. It is. And it goes back to teachers being a therapist, being a parent, being a counselor, being everything to these students. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to ask you, so you mentioned how science classes, you know, impacted you initially wanting to pursue a career in the medical field before you found your calling as an educator. Um, how do you view the importance of these moments and these impacts that one class can have on these students? What does that mean to you? So it it means that we all, as teachers and educators, can make a difference in the right direction. We can make a positive impact, not just on a person, but on their entire family. And if you change a family, you can change a community. If you change a community, you can change a city. And so my my investment in, in young people, let's just take heart, the experience I had in Harlem, for example, I invested yearly in those children, even when they left my class and went to the next science teacher or the next teacher or the next school. So we had built such relationship that even when you leave my academic environment, you know you have a safe place to come back to where someone believes in you. Most teachers make an impact on children for a very long time. Like my son still remembers his kindergarten teachers. He still talks about how much they supported him and how nervous he was his first day and his first week. And so we have to make sure that the moments are healthy and positive and empowering moments and not negative moments. And yes, children are going to mess up. Everyone messes up. Children are going to have bad days. Everyone has bad days. But it's how we as the adults in their lives help them get through those experiences that will teach them resilience. And it will teach them that it's okay if they make mistakes, but that's where you learn. So it's how we posture ourselves in those moments that will change a child's life forever. And it's such a heavy ask for teachers, especially when, as something that you mentioned previously, we don't have adequate training for teachers that really set them up expectation-wise for the impact that they could potentially have on these students, both positive or negative. Yeah. And, and I went to a, an, an excellent teacher training program. I have a master's in educational leadership and, and I also have a master's in teaching science. And so the programs gave me the infrastructure that I needed in order to have a successful classroom. But the hard work is where we really make them make it work, right? Where we really do the life-changing work. You can have multiple degrees if your heart is not in it for children. And if it's not invested in their long-term success, you are not going to see the payout that you want. And so it's important that we are really deeply training our teachers to deal with the whole child, 
to understand the effects of poverty on learning, the effects of trauma on learning, the effects of brokenness in the family on learning. All of that impacts how that child comes to school. But if you only give me one class that skims the surface and touches it, how good am I going to be? You will learn a lot that first year when you walk into the classroom with those 20 to 25 young people with different lives, with different situations, with different moments, all colliding in one place. And you will learn what the art of teaching is and the art of management is and the art of creating a safe place for children is. That first year is, <laughs> you hang on by your toenails that first year. <laughs> They're teaching you as much as you are teaching them. You really are. And you're learning so much about yourself while you're learning so much about them. So that first year is, it's incredible. I can't even imagine how much of an impact having an elder teacher mentor somebody to help them. I mean, that first year, I mean, you know, just you probably, just in your experience and so many of our deeper staff and um, who talk about that first year being an educator. I mean, I think that nothing prepares you. It was a lot of fun, but it was learning on the edge, meaning today they're going to come in this way. Tomorrow they may come in this way. The thing that I think helped prepare me a little bit more was I was a substitute teacher before I was fully licensed and in the classroom to teach science. And that was a great introduction because it's substitute teaching. You get everything thrown at you. As a sub, I taught K through eight in one of the largest middle schools in Newark, Mount Vernon uh, Middle School. I'll never forget it. And at, and at one point, I would see seven classes a day. And I saw everything from kindergarten up to eighth grade. And I was like, man, you go from five-year-olds, help me wipe my nose, to eight, eighth grade, which is I hate my boyfriend today and I wish I wasn't a lot. That's a whole nother situation. But it taught me to be flexible. It taught me to be fluid. It taught me to listen. And it taught me to really be a sense what's happening in the room. And so in that role, being an educator, being their counselor, being the person who's doing family management, you know, teachers end up wearing so many hats during that process. Um, yeah. Can you speak a bit about the various roles that educators fill, the various roles that you've had to fill and what that means to be really, truly one of the only career paths where you are filling so many different roles outside of the one that you're taught how to do. Yeah. So you you go to school for, let's say, to teach math, but you are not just a math teacher. You are a male role model. You are a female role model. You are a mother to those who don't have that that asset. You are a father to those who don't know or don't have good relationship with their father. You're a counselor because at some point this child will come to you crying for some reason and you will have to have wisdom enough to counsel them through whatever the situation is. You will also be the nurse because they will come to you and want to show you the rash before they want to go to the nurse and show the nurse the rash. You will be the one who settles all disputes because your classroom is a safe place, which means someone has to be the one to carry the, the, the stick of equitable treatment, as well as what the consequences are for things that go outside of our agreed upon bounds. And so you carry these weights with you as a teacher, because on any given day, you do not know what you're going to get. You have 25 students in one class coming from 25 different families with 25 different situations. Some of them good, some of them not so good. 
you know, jumping back to you being an educator personally, um, you had the incredible opportunity to teach science virtually in Antarctica. Um, can you tell us about the program, how it felt to be chosen for that experience and the reactions that you received from your students when you returned home? Man, um, that was probably um, one of the most incredible experiences of my life. It was um, not something I was looking for. It was something that God ordained for me. Let me be very clear. At the time, I was teaching sixth and eighth grade science um, at HCZ. And Dr. Stephen Picar of Queens College um, was looking to take a teacher of color on his next expedition to Antarctica. Jeff Canada is probably one of the foremost leaders of education, particularly around how to do it right in the country. And I had the privilege to serve under him for nine years at the Harlem Children's Home. And so he, Dr. Picard contacted Jeff, said, I'm, you know, looking to interview one of your teachers. I really think it would be a great opportunity for us to work together. I want children of color to see STEM as not just accessible, but something that they are born to do, something that they're built to do, something that they can do. And he came to the school, he interviewed myself and all of the other teachers on the team. And at the end of the day, he said, her, I want her for this. She's, that's the one. You're going to have a team that goes with you. Um, and it was the most incredible team I've ever met. They were drillers from New Zealand. Um, we had a, uh, a personal chef that came with us, the engineer that kept all of our equipment going. Dr. Picard and his team, we had a young lady from Oxford University who came down to do a lot of the geoseismic work. Um, it was just a, a team of excellence from literally across nations. And here was me, this teacher from Harlem who just was getting used to the idea of teaching in this type of environment. It was so amazing because of how it all came together. And at the end of it, I can say I was a different person. It was really overwhelming. I think the thing that stood out to me was the fact that so few people on the planet will ever have that experience. And I was allowed to have it. There's, you can't talk to someone like in a train in Manhattan and say, hey, have you ever been to Antarctica? And they'll say yes. It's one of those once in a lifetime opportunities. And I took it because as a, as a woman of color, it was my obligation and my duty to not say no. I wanted girls specifically to know that you can do anything you put your mind to. There is nothing that you cannot tackle. Was it physically exhausting? Absolutely. Mentally draining? A hundred percent. Would I trade it in for anything? No. It showed my girls, specifically all of my students, because I love my boys too, but my girls that the thing that they tell you you can't do should motivate you to do it even better. It should motivate you to kick down the door, not open the door, kick it down. It should motivate you to press into a place where no one else lives and you become the standard bearer. That's what it did. And I knew it because when I got to Skype and talk to my kids via satellite, they were like beaming. Oh my God, we can't believe you're there. We get to talk to you. It showed my girls. And to this day, they still haven't forgotten it because I, I still keep in touch with some of them on LinkedIn, that there's nothing that they couldn't do. Don't let them tell you, you can't go start a company. Don't let them tell you that you cannot travel to Indonesia. Don't let them tell you that you are not supposed to be the first CEO of. Nothing is impossible. You need discipline and focus and resources. That's it. And it showed them that the person who stood in front of them every single day teaching them science was the person who would literally go to the ends of the earth for them because I needed them to see it. 
And your passion as an educator just shines through anytime you talk about teaching or your students. And it makes me so curious, how did you know that you needed to eventually leave being an educator and go into the advocacy space? Ah, great question. Because I saw the limitations of what I could do in one district. I saw, and and the the district that I came from, we made incredible gains with those babies. I, I, I'm proud of all of my work, but that district really made a mark on my life because I saw where they were and I saw what we were able to do by the time I left. The advocacy space became important for me because I realized that the equation had to be solved on a larger level. So I know what Title I funding can do for a child. I know what ESSA has done for children. I know what No Child Left Behind did to children. I remember rolling out Common Core when it was still in its infantile stages and I was still at the Harlem Children's Zone. So all of that policy and all of the legislative things that happen behind the curtain directly affect the children that I love. I need to understand this so that I can help those that are at the table make the decisions that are right for these babies whose names they will never know. But I know their names. DeAndre, Janelle, Kiara, Tobias. I can name that graduating class of 2012 to this day because I was with them for six years. I know their names. I need someone else to listen so you can understand the impact on them and their families. I think that that's the best reason that you could have gone into advocacy, especially, you know, you talked about being an educator of color and trying to be at the table of the people making these decisions. Was it difficult for you to try to find your place and find your voice in the advocacy space as opposed to being in the education realm? It was it was difficult to try to figure out what vehicle would be the most efficient to move me into the place where I can have these conversations and be able to offer real real experiences to those that are making incredible decisions. The thing that I love about having been here for a little over a year is I've gotten to meet partners that we have on the Hill. I've gotten to meet partners that we have in other states. I've gotten to meet people who are the ones that are really moving legislation forward. And so I understand now you have information, but maybe you need just a little bit more. Maybe I can offer you a different perspective as you sign something into a a living, breathing thing that will affect children. And so the space that we have here allows me to do that. It allows me to sit at the table with those that that really do want to do good for kids. They really do want to do good for kids. But if if, if you're far removed from the classroom, because if you've either never had the experience or you had it a long time ago before you got into the political arena, you may be missing some things. What I would hope to do is what I've done in education so far is be the one in the gap. You know, in that conversation, there's no way that you would have known after starting at Defer and Earned that you would be elevated to being its interim CEO. <laughs> you know, what has that experience been like for you running the helm of this organization and being in charge of that conversation? It's it's really still surreal. Um, it's really been it's it's been great because. Um, being under Shavar for a year, watching his passion, watching his expertise, watching his political acumen was a, a, a gift for me. It really was an incredible experience. And I'm, I'm so glad to have met him. And thankfully, we still um, have a good relationship where I can call him if I ever need him. Um, but it gave me the behind the curtain look that I needed 
in order to kind of finish out the equation in my head. And so being at the 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 helm of the organization is now a joy for me because I get to link arms with the incredible parts of this organization to push the work forward. I now get to bring to bear 17, almost 18 years of experience in the classroom and in, in schools at different levels to say, this is what's happening. It's, it's the best thing for me to be able to talk to Charlie Barone about policy because Charlie's lens is authentic. My lens is authentic. And now you come to it with Charlie's 30 plus years of expertise and my expertise in a number of different ways. And now you've got, you know, now you've got magic. And I, and it's, it's, it's such a fortunate place for me to be in, to be in the organization with those that have been in the work for such a long time, who desperately love children as much as I do. That is a privilege and an honor. Well, how do you want to take the helm to go forward? What do you envision as your goals for 2023 with DEFER? So for, for DEFER, I've, it's, it's really steering the conversation around the use of the incredible amount of funding that is available right now. Um, a lot of it being the COVID funding. So I, I really believe strongly that there has never been an opportunity like there is before us now to achieve great progress. We're improving our, our schools, our public school system. The federal government in the last two years has issued over $420 billion for public education, which is incredible. And I'm so grateful that the funds are available for our children. However, we still need organizations like ours to bring the the voices of those parents and children that can't speak to themselves to the people who hold the seats, to the people who hold the power, to the ones who make the decisions, our leaders, our policymakers. Our parents don't sit at those tables. We do. We have an opportunity as an organization to use our political muscle, if you will, to really make sure that the seats that we have at the table are across from the people that understand the depth of the work that is in front of us. And similarly, what do you envision as your goals for EARN? For EARN, it's to really deepen our work around innovation and accountability. So there are so many great ideas out right now around technology, around personalized learning, great work that charter schools are doing, great work that a lot of different schools are doing. But we have to step back and say, is it working? I think parents, policymakers, elected officials, advocacy organizations like ours will all agree now that the country's education system is flawed. It's been flawed for some time. And we have to take a holistic look at it. We have to be able to think about how do we do this differently? We're not seeing what we want to see. The NAEP results bore that out. How do we look at this differently? How do we approach this differently? Thereby really motivating some things in ourselves and in our teachers and in our leaders to give our kids a different experience, to pull on those things that we have not been able to pull on before. I think COVID laid bare the, the precise flaws in the system. And so I think the opportunity that we have at EARN is to be the think tank and to bring great ideas out and then to put action behind the great ideas that are there, that are absolutely there. We need to now be able to galvanize that and put them into action. I agree, COVID exposed so many problems and inequities in the education system. And now we have such an opportunity, not just to fix the gap from COVID, but maybe go a bit further and have a bigger conversation about how we can alter education to help our students. 